Hello, everyone. This is Sherry Rice. Welcome to Access to Healthcare's weekly podcast, where we bring you local guests on topics of interest to you and your family. Today, we are discussing diversity, inclusion, and social inequities. And my guest today, to help us unpack these important issues, is Dr. Eloisa Gordon-Mora, University Diversity and Inclusion Officer at the University of Nevada, Reno. Welcome, Dr. Mora. Good afternoon, and thank you, Sherry, for the invitation, and a warm welcome to all the listeners. Well, it's a, it's a fabulous topic and certainly one that um, is worth discussing not just in this podcast, but continually. But before we start in the discussion, can you tell me what is the role of the diversity and inclusion officer at the university? Can you can you explain that to us? Yes, uh, of course. Um, university diversity and inclusion officer, which is the title I have at UNR, is what many times um, is termed chief diversity officer. The chief diversity officer officer is usually in charge of institution-wide concerns around diversity, equity, and inclusion that we will explain further, affecting faculty, students, staff, and the surrounding communities. It's a challenging role in the sense that it entails the totality of the university. I don't engage only with faculty, only with students and so forth, but with the totality of the university population, but greatly is in the areas of policy development, policy reviews, strategic planning, and addressing the ever-evolving and emerging issues around the different demographics, communities, identity groups that are included broadly in, in the notions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So do you... Do you recommend policies on diversity and inclusion to the university that they then enact? Right now what we are working on in terms of uh, UNR is that we're creating the first ever strategic plan on diversity, equity, and inclusion for the institution. And that's usually a standard uh, in universities that have been able to advance on these concerns. So yes, out of the strategic plan, we will be able to implement more consistently uh, and following strategic concerns such as accountability, measures, goals, et cetera, on a more regular basis. As many universities, uh, UNR has been uh, actively involved in all these matters, uh, but we are taking the work to a greater level of more strategic planning, policy development, and related matters on a more consistent basis, as I said. And who's part of the strategic plan, um, Dr. Moya? Who, who, uh, who takes part in making the decisions on the strategic plan? Uh, good question. Um, by formation, I think this is important to know. I'm a political scientist, um, so aside my role as university diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, I've been a dean, a provost, as well as a community organizer. So for me, the notion of democracy and active engagement is a very lived and personal, philosophical, professional one. And the answer to the question is the different uh, members of the different critical groups are the ones that we're working with to set up that ultimate goal of creating a strategic, more strategic direction. 
So uh, from the office, we've been meeting with all the university sectors, representation from all the colleges and schools, from student services. Now we're working with marketing and communications, and we will proceed uh, to include administration and finance that includes such areas as human resources and research and innovation as well. So ideally, the membership and the selected representatives of uh, each area work with us in different task forces on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And from there is that we, in a consensual fashion, create the strategic plan. And how long do you think this will take? Normally, uh, because of the long-standing complexity of the issues that mm -hmm. we are addressing, many of them decades old, centuries old, such as structural racism, homophobia, sexism, and so forth. This is not something that can be adequately, effectively accomplished in the short term. Many universities have taken up to three years to carry out this type of planning. But our goal, given the urgency at the moment, is that we will have it completed by the end of this academic year. Oh, wow, that's uh, that's quite a goal by the Thanks. end of the academic year. Well, Dr. Mora, can we talk about the definition of diversity? Because we use that, you know, a lot of us use that word a lot. We say this is very diverse, it's a diverse organization. And yet, I'm not sure that um, we know the true definition. And how can you categorize oneself or one's organization as being diverse? That is an excellent question. And if I mentioned earlier that my job and defining is a bit challenging, it has to do precisely uh, due to the fact that not all of us understand, understand the notions of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the same way. I always give the example that if you were to say I'm a lawyer, even if somebody's not a lawyer, the person would more or less know what you do in your job, mm -hmm. whereas it's, that's not really the case with a lot of uh, what is entailed in diversity, equity, and inclusion mm -hmm. uh, work. So I'll start with diversity because those three are not synonymous. They're actually an evolution of the work. We begin with diversity uh, always because that's the base level of representation of the different groups that form our society. And those groups as understood by race, ethnicity, gender, sexual and gender identity, ability, age, low-income status. So when we say that an institution, an organization is diverse, it means simply that it's constituted by a good representation of those groups. Um, so something else to clarify is that individuals per se are not diverse. What makes an institution diverse is not having a representation in one individual of a identity, but rather groups are diverse. So the more um, wider representation in terms of groups and total numbers of, of each uh, group formation, category, or affinity group, however you want to define it, the more diverse the institution or organization. From there we build, which is not the same thing as that. You can have, um, in, in principle, a diverse organization that is not inclusive. That means it might have a wide um, level of representation of different groups, but those groups do not feel equally welcome. They're not 
um, experiencing the same uh, type of access to resources, sense of comfort, sense of safety, um, different areas. So inclusion is a movement into not simply having wider and different groups as part of an institution, but also examining the inside internal structures. Um, so would that, an example of that in an organization be that you have um, representation from Hispanics, African Americans, um, LBGQT, but they never get up to management. Among other things, or that um, they uh, encounter um, disproportionate experiences of discomfort, mm -hmm. uh, whether they they be openly uh, racist or prejudicial in terms of comments, in terms of experiences or subtle forms of, of those, what is usually called implicit bias, microaggressions. Mm -hmm. So in, move, a movement to inclusion uh, entails addressing those needs uh, up front, addressing the reality of microaggression, implicit bias. All of us have a level of implicit bias. Right. Because we do not have... Um, the awareness and knowledge, the exposure to all possible groups of the human <laughs> condition, we most more certainly interpret um, certain groups through stereotypes, and that's partly what implicit bias entails. Mm -hmm. So moving um, into more inclusiveness uh, means, among other things, not necessarily that, and unfortunately, that implicit bias will be absolutely eliminated, but that we grow increasingly aware of those realities and actively um, move into responding to them. And finally, equity, which is the final goal that many times can be equated to so social justice, is a situation, in this case an organization, that is not only diverse, there is widespread representation of diverse societal groups, it's inclusive, there's a level of um, reasonable parity in terms of belonging, comfort, access to resources, as you say, leadership roles, most certainly, and that will then result in a more equitable, fair, just situation. Mm -hmm. Knowing that equity is never synonymous to equality because not all groups require the same uh, resources and right. support. That's um, That takes a great deal of commitment and dedication, I think, for a business or an organization to truly go through all the different issues of diversity, inclusion, and equity. Exactly, and that's why um, my initial comments that um, there's a great level of purposeful strategic planning to be able to be more successful along those goals. Not only do, are we addressing the needs of multiple and very diverse groups in terms of historical legacies, in terms of formal and informal um, experiences of oppression, of prejudice, of exclusion, but this cannot happen simply out of the goodwill of an organization or purely abstract values. It has to be part of a very specific working plan. And that's why I say always diversity, equity, inclusion is a lot about work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the same 
in as in any other profession. And it has to be um, research-based, data-driven. It has to have the foundation of any um, valid work uh, in professional academic endeavor. So what do students of different ethnicities and LGBTQT students need in a school system to feel safe and included? I always say since uh, my initial identifications are always as an educator. I began as a faculty member of the uh, Department of Political Science. Ideally, all, all students would require and would demand to be safe and included. But we know that historically that's not the case. So an institution has to embrace those um, structural, historical, realities of racism, of oppression, of marginalization, of different forms of hatred um, that are therefore not absent from the educational experience. Um, a phrase that is being used often in the context where are at this moment after George Floyd's murder, the reactivation of BLM, is that notion of structural racism, and that's not necessarily, again, a notion that everybody understands. Um, structures are not simply physical matters, um, what holds a building, but um, more abstract practices as the educational system, for instance, is a structure and historically has had legacies of racism in different ways. Um, as we continue to evolve as um, more diverse institutions, we have to address not only those legacies, but understand the false homogeneous expectations that education has sometimes perpetuated mm -hmm. a student as if students were a homogeneous entity. Yeah. Now, we understand that students are students in very pluralized <laughs> understanding of the term and not simply race, but also gender, sexual orientation, all of that. And those students need, therefore, that clear recognition by the institutions that those different forms of differences are not only recognized, but are valued and supported. So, so let, me, let me kind of paraphrase some things that you were talking about. That it, the job, it, or job, or the universities, the school system, part of their job is to help students feel safe and included. That that we've but there's many, many nuances to that. And, and that to help yeah. all children or all students feel safe and included. And that is um played out in many different levels, from a very formal policy level that there are certain situations that are clearly um established as unacceptable such as events of hate and bias, uh, overt aggressions, etc. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about. I mean, I I will admit that I'm having a hard time understanding how a university, part of their strategic plan is to have uh, a white supremacist student uh, on campus feel safe and comfortable with uh, what they're expounding. Exactly, and that's been the other uh, aspect of um, the process, particularly in educational settings, 
which ultimately we are about education. When we say as a public institution that we are open and welcoming to all our surrounding communities, to all our demographics, to all the possible ideological, political, religious, et cetera, uh, identifications, we mean it. But when I say on a more formal level, um, in terms of policy, in terms of curriculum, in terms of the classroom experience, what I'm referring to is that no valid university can be a homogeneous, dogmatic setting, but there has to be conditions in which dialogue, education, exchange, different viewpoints are played out. And that's more what I mean, that ultimately it's about creating those settings, those um, terms of the conversations, and the conversations can run the spectrum from the classroom experience to student exchanges uh, in clubs and organizations, in their residential living, in the dorms. So it's most certainly all-embracing. Well, and, and we would be um, remiss then uh, right now in, uh, in August if we were having a discussion on diversity, inclusion, and equity, not to talk about Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's been uh, intertwined with what's been happening with COVID-19, uh, certainly here in the Reno area. It's been intertwined in many ways um, into our community. Mm -hmm. And when I looked it up, I didn't realize that it started in 2013 uh, in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murders. But it seems like Black Lives Matter recently, uh, with the death of George Floyd, um, has come to a tipping point. Do you do you feel it's at a tipping point? Most certainly, we are experiencing a stride, as that sounds, um, a unique moment in the history of our nation, uh, and hopefully, uh, a, what should be a positive conjuncture of realization of different areas of life that we have to finally face forefront and improve. As you will mention, um, what is called typically or normally um, Black Lives Matter was specifically um, an, a movement and an organization, a political will that was started and uh, that was formally started in 2013, yes, after the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer, George Zimmerman. Something that people do not know either that it was begun by three women, three African-American women. And from that kind of formal um, organizational um, foundation, the phrase Black Lives Matter has been used for many things because it actually began as part of the original protest in the early uh, teens, uh, with, beginning with Trayvon Martin, but also including uh, Michael Brown and so also including Eric Gardner, that um, more collective realization of patterns of police brutality, of the disproportionate um, persecution of black males, um, and also, to a great extent, Latino and brown communities. So it began um, as some type of movement that has also uh, been formalized, is what I'm trying to say, into mm -hmm. an organization called the Black Lives Matter. And what has happened 
after George Floyd's murder is that both uh, the importance of, of the movement of the ideas of the political will has been reactivated, but not necessarily in direct connection only to the formal organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's quite a few people that have come forward to support Black Lives Matter and maybe don't understand that it is an organization. And it's it has become, I would say, uh, from the beginnings in 2013, because those beginnings by those three women were very specifically focused on issues of police brutality, on shootings, on um, incarceration, and overall situations that need to be addressed um, in terms of police and the black community. But from there, it evolved to to also address issues of black lives in the workplace, black lives in the education, and because of their focus on also um, placing those that are the most vulnerable um, margins of society to the center, I think that the organization also speaks to different communities, other ethnicities, other groups that have faced other forms of oppression. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly has, it brings up a lot of discussion, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, with a lot of different people, and they become very passionate about it on both sides. Exactly, and partly is which this moment should uh, help us all consistently be aware, which is the need for education. Mm -hmm. I think that part of the tensions around the phrase Black Lives Matter is a lack of understanding of the complexity even of the phrase as an organization, as an idea, how we're using it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the events that then also have more spontaneously happen um, with the different forms of protest that have happened. Right. Most recently, uh, last night, yeah. after the shooting in Wisconsin. Yeah, I saw that. Um, let's talk about social inequities, um, what that is, how that uh, plays into the issue of inclusion, diversity, Black Lives Matter. Um, what are social inequities? Social inequities are Again, structural, and by that I mean educational, resource, um, possibilities, and access, and and or the lack of that certain groups have historically experienced. Um, Social inequities are that as, let's say, I'm a Latina, which I am, I might have been exposed to certain conditions of inequities, of injustices of um, lack of resources and access to them, not simply because I'm an individual, but because I am part of a group. And I'm not saying that in terms of me personally. I'm saying um, the way um, is to be understood. That membership in certain groups, greatly African-American, Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Pacific Islander, among um, others, are also um, to be in the understood in many uh, instances as correlated, as connected to situations of poverty, situations of exclusion, situations of lack of 
adequate health care, lack of uh, adequate educational opportunities. And in terms of the pandemic, it's not surprising that nationally and at the level of Nevada, there has been um, data supported uh, enormous disparities in the health impacts on uh, by, created by COVID-19 nationally on African-American populations and at the state of Nevada on Latino populations. An example that we can bring is that in Washoe County, 42% of the cases um, are Latinos. Latino, yeah. Only um, in terms of their a proportion in the total population, they represent only 25%. Right. So almost double the possibility that you will be impacted. And again, many reasons that have to do with social inequities. Why? Because Latinos, African Americans are um, concentrated many times in certain areas of employment, service uh, areas such as construction, maintenance, agriculture areas that um, are hourly, hourly wages um, are, are paid by the hour, so therefore no possibility of you not showing up to work uh, in terms of your own survival. There are areas of work that do not allow for social distancing. And on the other hand, because of the preponderance of low-income situations, of vulnerable economic situation among those populations, healthcare access is also um, a challenge, um, health insurance not to mention, et cetera. Right. I um, was listening to NPR this morning and they had someone on talking about the farm workers and how challenging it is with COVID because, of course, they don't get sick time and they go to mm -hmm. work sick and they um, uh, they get paid by the pound or it, whatever they pick, and so therefore the only money they get is if they just keep going. And now they've exacerbated it with the smoke. Uh, of course, they were talking about California. They were exacerbating it with the smoke and uh, and the double whammy of the uh, Latino population, and that is all about social inequities. Clearly, and in case of the Latino population, even though it's not only a Latino issue, it's also an African issue in terms of the African continent, Caribbean issue. We also have to add uh, the fact of undocumented or documented status. So the fears of good sectors within those groups of not being able to either access healthcare n or nor having it, but also their constant fears of being exposed. And ironically, uh, despite the fact that they're many times considered essential workers, Right, right. Well, do you think that we can wrap this up today on a positive note? Do you feel that towards that we're heading towards a new time of understanding and healing around the issues of diversity and inclusion? Do you, um, and what do you think needs to happen to move into that time of healing? Well, as a social scientist, um, I always tell my students that life is never static uh, in the same way that we cannot go back certain many times mythologize <laughs> historical mm. moments. Um, on the other hand, the gains of all the groups that throughout history have struggled um, are, are real. We are um, in a place in 2020 with all that it's an enormous level of challenge that we're facing, 
but unfortunately, but fortunately, it's not the place we were 50 years ago. As right. Any, right. Uh, among other things, before civil rights legislation and all of the accompanying legislation, the formalities that I was talking about that are required. Um, on the positive side, that's a point of departure. We have uh, levels of gains that are real. On the, I wouldn't say negative, but on the consciousness raising level that is always required, rights are never, um, never ending guarantees. Rights can be taken away. So not only the rights that we already have, but um, ones that we further need are, on, are constantly a source for us as a society to keep striving for. So on the positive side, that is the role that we as active members of a society have to play. And the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, on the other hand, are never an ending to a road. But is a constant journey. So do you think the most important thing that we can do is talk to each other? Talk to one another, um, educate uh, ourselves on different aspects. Um, I think we're living in times of not only great polarization, but um, great, great difficulty in listening yeah. to one another. We approach a situation, uh, a kind of communicative situation many times already with a point of view uh, made, uh, with a decision made, and it's not that we will necessarily change um, many of our opinions and beliefs, but we most certainly need to be able to listen and accept what what are valid um, positions and experiences uh, as opposed to aggressive and violent, but, um, but that might not be our understanding. Well, it is getting harder and harder sometimes, I think, um, Dr. Moore, to listen to people who whose opinions are so opposite yes. of itself. So part of what we have to do, and I do believe as a political scientist, that um, we are in a moment that we really have to embrace the crucial importance of democracy and what is to live in a democratic society. Again, that's something that we can take for granted. And part of that capacity is to purposely create uh, the conditions that we can better talk to one another. Well, I think that that, um, that would be a fabulous place to start. And yes. I, I don't hold myself above that. I, not for one second. I know that it's getting harder and harder um, even for myself, to be able to listen to to the what I would call the opposite side. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because yeah. Um, it has become polarized. That means extremists, either right. or. Whereas right. life should be more muted than that. Yeah. And I sometimes wonder how we got here, but I'm sure that we could see many, many things that played into how we got here, and even in families, uh, the polarization. And uh, even uh, friends who um, can't seem to talk about things anymore and maybe avoid each other. It it really uh, seems very dramatic and traumatic. We're living most certainly in a situation of multiple crises, and crises always provoke in most people fear, and fear 
um, many times leads to impatience and intolerance. So those are all objective reality, but part of what we can continue doing is understanding better um, those situations, those responses as a way not to fall prey of them unreflectively. Well, I think that's a good place to um, end it for today on listening and reflective um, reflective listening. And yes, correct. <laughs> being able to hear the other person, which seems to be getting harder and harder every day. I'm wondering if we can come back and talk to you more towards the end of the year when you've done a little more work on your strategic plan. It would be my pleasure. My that pleasure. would be fabulous. Um, Important topic today, and thank you so much, Dr. Moore, for this important discussion. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. So hope to talk to you soon. We've been talking today about inclusion and diversity and social inequities with Dr. Eloise gordon Mora, University Diversity and Inclusion Officer with the University of Nevada, Reno. I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, please pass this podcast on to somebody who you think uh, might be interested. For a list of our podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast. And please be safe, everyone. And please wear your mask.